If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask you to turn the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 21st chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 21. While you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to do what you do every week, but give special attention to the word as we read it this morning. I won't have time to reread these passages, so the more you can uh, grasp the first pass through, the better we will be. So if you have your, found your place in Deuteronomy 21, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear, read together, the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man is found slain, lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley they are to break the heifer's neck. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done, except this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And the bloodshed will be atoned for. So you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house, And mourned her father and mother for a full month. Then you may go to her and be her husband. And she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. If a man has two sons and he loves one but not the other. And both bear, if he has wives and he loves one but not the other. And both bear him sons but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of the father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If a man guilty of a capital offense, is put to death and his body is hung on a tree. You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day. 
Because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for your word. Parts of it this morning seem very foreign to us from a time long ago. And that's true. But Lord, you are a God who remains the same forever and ever. You do not change. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you this morning, your character. And once again, we pray, Lord, that you would, through the truth of your word, show us the kind of people that you intend for us to be, to do the things that you call us to do. We submit ourselves now to you and to the authority of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. So today, this Sunday morning, marks the beginning of the third year in which we have been studying Deuteronomy. Woo! Three years. But the past two years, God certainly has revealed a lot of truth to us about who he is, his character. He's shown us a whole lot of truth, given it to us to, to, to deal with, about how we can live well in this land in which God has placed us as believers in Christ, how to live well here and how to be a blessing to this place in which we find ourselves. That was God's intention for his people when he spoke these words to them through Moses on the plains of Moab before he allowed them to enter into the promised land. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, says something really amazing. It says, when it goes well with the righteous... The city rejoices. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. That is exciting for me to think about. That that you and I together here in this place have the ability to make the city of Charleston rejoice. We have the ability, because God says so, to be a blessing to this city. And that's why, believe it or not, this chapter before us in Deuteronomy 21 is so vitally important because in this chapter, God instructs his covenant people, the community of faith, and he tells them how it is that they should go about dealing with brokenness that they find in their own community, among their own people. And if you and I will ever be a blessing to this city, if we will ever be a reason for this city of Charleston to rejoice we better know how it is that we should deal with the brokenness that we find among ourselves. Find the hope and the healing for that brokenness so that we first rejoice. Then we will be able to help others rejoice with us as well. So that's what this chapter does before us this morning. It talks about brokenness within the community. I ask you to look at verse 8. It says there to accept this atonement for your people Israel whom you have redeemed, O Lord. Your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord. Everything about which we're going to talk this morning takes place among God's people. Everything among people who God chose from among all the peoples of the earth to be his treasured possession. Among people who God redeemed, he bought them back. Among people upon whom God has poured out his grace and his mercy. The grace of worship, these people having the ability to see the Lord God high and exalted, surrounded by the the ornate furnishings of the temple, 
the vibrant colors of the fabrics, the, the precious metals and jewels, all of it before their eyes, the continual sacrifices, letting them know that sin must be dealt with. God has provided a way to deal with it, and God does forgive sins. Among people who have been graced with the word of God, people above all people on the face of the earth know how to get it right because they know the source of life. It's God himself. God has revealed to them his truth, how to live life and how to live it well. Well, among all these people, with all this available to them, among God's covenant community, there still exists brokenness. And if it was true for the people of ancient Israel, it's true for us, the church today. There is brokenness among us. Let's not be shocked by that fact. Let's not distance ourselves from those who are broken. Let's not isolate them. Let's not judge those who are broken among us because their brokenness happens to be different from our brokenness. But let's do this. Let's figure out how it is that we are to deal with this brokenness. It's what chapter 21 does. It's divided, as you heard during the reading of the word, into five if situations. And I was determined that I'm going to get through all five of them this Sunday morning. But if I get through all five of them, you'll have to be here a lot longer than you want to be here. You're going to be here longer than you want to be as it is. But I hope to cover three of them uh, this morning. So let's take up the first one. The first if situation is in verses one through nine, and it concerns this unsolved murder. You heard the reading. Someone in the community of faith stumbles upon a body, a dead body, but no one knows who the murderer is. That means that someone in this covenant community of faith has a murderous heart. You would think that would not be true among God's people. You would think that wouldn't be true among people who know the grace of God and know how to deal with an angry heart or an envious heart or a prideful heart or whatever sort of heart would lead someone to kill another person. But here it is, brokenness. So what's God's response to this brokenness, to this unsolved murder? Well, God requires his people take responsibility for it. You see, this unidentified murderer was part of a community, a, a village, a town. The murderer, whoever he was, was connected to the covenant family of God. He had lines of relationships going out from a web of them. He interacted with the people of God and they interacted with him. Perhaps that's why God requires in verse 2 that this measurement be taken from the, from the body found dead to the nearest town so that the town in closest proximity would take responsibility because most likely the murderer was part of that community. See, all of us are, all of us, are shaped by the community in which we find ourselves. And if you look at the lives of some of the most infamous murderers in our recent history, you know, you see that often they committed the crimes they committed because of the way they perceived they were treated by their community. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Remember them, the, the two guys that did those horrendous killings at Columbine High School. Remember what they talked about in their journals? about the cliques that they saw when they looked around them. 
And these guys felt like they were ostracized, that they were outcasts. And so in some way, their killing was a result of the community in which they found themselves, taking revenge on that community. At the same time, there was talk about bullying and the influence of violent movies and video games in America. People are trying to figure out what responsibility, what part the community has in acts as horrific as those in Columbine. Similar stories told by Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy. Their perceptions of themselves was that they were outcasts. These serial killers could not find community within their community. I don't know if you ever saw Ted Bundy's last interview, recorded interview. But man, he is relentless in that interview on his attack of pornography and the the perversion and the devastation that it brought to his life. And he just issues this warning. He says, I'm telling you, the same thing is going to happen if something's not done about this. About a society that promotes and allows pornography. A society in which the highest court in the land can't really define exactly what pornography is. See, the point is that we have a responsibility toward one another, particularly here in this room, in this family here at Redeemer. Romans 12, verse 5 says, So in Christ, we who are many, that's us, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We got to grasp this throughout Scripture. Everywhere is the idea of community. It is undeniable. We belong to each other. The broken person among God's people The person whose brokenness leads to sin is not an island unto himself or herself. Or at least they shouldn't be. Left alone to say, well, you got yourself into this mess. You get yourself out of it. That broken person has ties that go out from them to other people. And so we have to ask what our words what our attitudes, what our actions might have done to contribute to the brokenness of another person? What if we excluded someone or isolated someone right here in the church who was longing so much to be accepted and included? What might those feelings of isolation produce in them? Do we love one another enough to get to know each other, what our lives are like, what our challenges are, what our struggles are. When we see signs of trouble in someone else, do we address them or ignore them or just hope that they'll go away and self-correct? What do we tacitly value that may lead to the brokenness of another person? Perhaps you value money. You value position. And you work really hard to achieve both. Well, what do your values, what brokenness might they produce in your family? Your biological family? Your church family? Because of your unavailability? We are a community together and we are responsible for each other. And our words and our attitudes and our actions have an impact in good ways and and, and bad ways. God calls us to be responsible for one another. I wish I could read them. I can't. 
but there are over 30 one another passages, over 30 of them in the New Testament, calling us to, to, to belong to one another. If you could read all those passages, you would hear them say for us to love one another, to encourage one another, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to be devoted to one another, to bear one another's burdens, to submit to one another, to have fellowship with one another. See, that's our responsibility, one to the other. And we've got to be mindful of the impact that our lives have on other people. Because if we will ever have an impact on the city around us, if we will ever cause joy in this city, then we have got to be responsible for one another. For first, loving and caring and helping for one another right here in this place. That's what God calls us to do. The second scenario, it's in verses 10 through 14. And it concerns this woman from an enemy nation who's taken captive when her people are defeated by the nation of Israel. Now, what is the motivation for this man wanting to take this woman captive? Well, you could say, oh, it was love at first sight. But I think we all know better than that, don't we? The man saw this woman, she was beautiful, and he wanted her. He believed she would be an easy target because she was a member of the defeated people. So he thinks it would just be easy to have his way with her. She's just property. Now, amazingly enough, this attitude exists among God's people who have the means of grace available to them. People who know that every human being is made in the image of God. They deserve dignity and respect. It isn't difficult to understand why a similar attitude to the one in these verses exists among us today. You don't have to have me tell you that our culture is addicted to, saturated, saturated with sex, and pornography. What view do you have to have of another human being to watch it? What good place is it going to lead you? To a godly view of another human being created in the image of God? In this age of hooking up What is sacred or special about sex? Ladies, I don't know what view you have of yourselves. But I hope this morning that you will adopt the view that God has of you as he reveals it here in these verses. If this woman had been captured by a pagan nation, she would have undoubtedly in that culture, been mistreated and even raped without second thought and then tossed aside. But God is different. God is always different. He's always better than our very best. And he gives dignity in these verses to this captive woman, even though she is not part of the covenant community of faith. God is not going to allow this soldier who is part of the covenant community of faith to degrade this woman to satisfy his own desires. The soldier must wait. And after this waiting period, 
the period of time when he did not get what he wanted. If he still wants this woman, he must marry her. And after he marries her, guess what? Then he can have sex with her. See, God gives dignity to people. Even more in this passage. If after this marriage takes place, the foreign woman displeases her husband, according to verse 14, then he can let her go wherever she wishes, but he cannot sell her or treat her as a slave. Literally translated in the Hebrew, he cannot uh, treat her as merchandise. She could have been easily abused, right? Foreigner, strange land, who cares about her? She's just a, a foreigner, as we used to say in West Virginia. God won't permit it. He grants dignity to this woman. And so I, I pray this morning that you will think of yourself as highly as God thinks of you. And I pray that you will require, ladies, the men in your life, especially those, especially those in the community of faith, to think that highly of you. Our culture is not going to require it of them. And so you must. You are not merchandise to be enjoyed. You are a human being to be valued, honored, and respected. So respect yourself as God does. He views you as a special treasure. If the men in your life don't view you in the same way, if they won't respect you in this basic way, believe me, you don't need them. And there's a song I want you to listen to and memorize and sing it to them. Hit the road, Jack. Yeah, don't you come back. No more, no more, no more. Hit the road. Guys, you better have the same view of human dignity as well. You think it doesn't matter what you're watching. It's anonymous. You think it doesn't matter who you find to satisfy yourself. You don't really know them anyway. That's what this soldier thought in this verse. What's it matter? Conquered people, we do what we want with them. Who would care? We'll do with them what we would never do with our own women in our own community or the girl that I want to marry. But see, God exposes the error of that thinking here. God will not permit it. So respect yourself, guys. You're more than physical drive. You know, guys, we slap each other on the back, punch each other in the arm. Wink, wink, way to go, boy. That's what we do. But come on. Respect yourself. You don't have to be a helpless victim of our oversexed culture. And it's difficult. But you're more than that. And you're better than that. And adopt God's view of you. God has much for you to do. God has called you to do much. He's equipped you to lead the way in advancing and building his kingdom here on earth. Have God's view of you. Look, we don't even have time to delve into other questions that come out of of these verses. But they certainly need to be asked and answered. For instance, why is this man looking for a woman outside of the community of faith anyway? What would they have in common? Why would he want to link his life with someone who does not know and love the God of glory and grace that he has the privilege of knowing? 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
What harmony is there between Christ and Belial or the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Wow. Paul asks five questions that he intends for us to answer to make this very point. And then he adds, for we are the temple of the living God. So here's the reality. Among God's people, there is brokenness. There are wrong attitudes about the dignity of other human beings. There are wrong attitudes about sex. There are wrong attitudes about who makes the right marriage partner. And the only way that we're going to find help and healing from this particular brokenness is through the gospel. Because the church and the gospel it offers, that's what will give true worth and true dignity to human beings. So we better be applying the gospel to ourselves and our own views and our own attitudes if we ever have any hope of being the cause of rejoicing here in the city of Charleston. Third scenario. Third scenario. Verses 15 through 17. This one addresses brokenness in the home. There's a man who doesn't love his first wife, so he takes a second wife by whom he has a second son. Wherever there are two wives present, there's going to be trouble. Now, that's not the women's fault. Don't hear me say that, though it could be. I don't know. But it's a testimony of Scripture. Sarah, she didn't believe that God was able to fulfill his promise to give her a child. He promised, but she was so old it would never happen. So she says, Abraham, husband, Abraham, you go sleep with my servant Hagar and maybe we can fulfill God's promise through her. So Abraham uh, concedes. He does that and, and Hagar, the, the servant, becomes pregnant. And then the trouble starts. Jealousy, hatred, abuse. All of it's unleashed. Suddenly Sarah wants to get rid of that servant, Hagar, and her child. Then there's Jacob and his two wives. And the tension and the turmoil and the competition and the devastated emotions, devastated emotions between Jacob and these two wives, Rachel and Leah, that's famous. So as Moses addresses these people here on the plains of Moab, the accepted culture of their day and the the law of God was that the greater part of the inheritance, the blessing, is to be passed on to the firstborn son. But even among God's people, among people who have the means of grace available to them, among people who have a heavenly father who loves and cares for them, there is still family dysfunction. There's brokenness. We can imagine the probable scenario, the backstory to the scenario described here. Second wife, honey, if you really love me, if you want me to love you, forget wife number one. Forget child number one. If you really love me, disinherit him and and give everything you have to my son. But see, dysfunction doesn't override God's justice. Dysfunction doesn't override God's justice. God is not going to set aside his justice to satisfy the whim of a husband or the sin of a husband. And the Lord's not going to set aside his justice so that that husband can find peace within a family that he broke. According to God's justice, 
the first son is not going to suffer because of his father's sin. According to God's justice, the first son is to receive the inheritance to which he is entitled. Verse 15, the right of the firstborn belongs to him. Listen, the family, it is the most basic structure in society. And God designed it to be that way. Of everything that God created at the time of creation, he said, it is good, except for one thing. And you know what it is. It was Adam's loneliness. God looked at Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. So what did God do? He created Eve, another human being made in the image of God. And of Eve, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then God said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So from the beginning of human history, God established the family, which is one man, one woman coming together as one. And if God so blesses them from that union, children will come. This is God's design. It's God's design. He planned it. He'll protect it. And he will not allow sin to obliterate it. What would be the end for the family unit? If one rule after another was set aside to accommodate the urges of people, set aside the rule of firstborn, well, what else is going to be set aside? God knows that brokenness is going to be a reality, but he does not excuse it. God requires justice for this deprived son. And if we're going to make a difference in the city of Charleston, if we're going to cause the city of Charleston to rejoice, then we better be people of justice inside these walls. You know, the world most often labels us. You know how they label us. We're hypocrites, right? We're not genuine. We're not authentic. We say one thing and we do another. We set aside God's law when we believe there's justification for it. Well, I know that God's law says this, but, and then off we go. We let each other off the hook and that's not justice. God is not required to bend his rules for us to help us out of a situation that we've created for ourselves or to make our life easier. Believe me, it would have been easier for the father in this scenario to have abandoned his first family in favor of his second. But what does God say? No, no way. That is not just. The world needs to see us doing what is right, even when it is not convenient for us to do it. See, we're fooled. We're becoming more and more fooled into believing that what we need to do as a church is to bend with the culture. As the culture shifts, as the culture changes like this, do you get dizzy? That's what we're supposed to do as a church. Because if we bend with the culture, then we will be attractive to the culture. But if we are going to bend with the culture, then we are redundant. I hope you know that. If we are going to bend with the culture, there is no reason for us to exist. We might as well close up shop. We have made our culture God. Even though we know 
from the testimony of history that culture has often been wrong in its views and in its laws throughout history. It's been wrong on issues of race. It's been wrong on issues of environment. It's been wrong on issues of uh, economics. And now we can look back and say, wow, they were really wrong in the way they treated those people back then. They were really wrong in the way they treated women back then. Wow, they were really wrong in the way they stripped, mined, and raped that land. Again, West Virginia coming out here. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's true. Culture can be just as wrong now as it was then. And you and I may not live long enough to look back and say, what were they thinking back then? How could they not have honored the sanctity of human life or the sanctity of marriage? Can you believe the laws those people had on the books back then? And how will we, who have the truth of God and the grace of God, available to us, explain it away if the church is always shifting with the culture. Well, people say the church, the church, what? They're just the same as everybody else. They're always changing their tune. Jesus alone is complete and perfect truth. Jesus alone is complete and perfect truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And when Jesus speaks, we must listen And obey. And when he tells us what is right and just, we must do what is right and just or close our doors. Who would need us anyway? If we want to have an impact out there, we better be people of integrity in here who act justly, who do what's right and stand for what's right, even when it's inconvenient or even when it's painful. But we don't always do that. Because we're broken people, even though we have the means of grace available to us, we should be responsible for one another, as we saw in the first scenario, we're not. We should protect the dignity of other people, but we often do not. We should act justly, but we often don't, because we are broken. So here's the good part, and we're almost done. That's good part two. Here, in this chapter on brokenness, How very, 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 very good of God to put the gospel right here. Before people knew to call it the gospel, it's all over this chapter of brokenness. Signs everywhere pointing to Jesus. The heifer mentioned in the very beginning of the chapter and the man hanging on the tree at the very end of the chapter. These are what I call the Jesus bookends. Jesus at the beginning of brokenness. Jesus at the end of brokenness. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There he is. The heifer. Innocent. Unused. That's what was required to make atonement for the murderer. And it points to Jesus. Does it not? The perfect, sinless Son of God. The only one who could make atonement for our sin. The place that the atonement was made had to be remote outside of the village. And it had to have a continually flowing stream. What beautiful pictures. Jesus takes your sin and my sin far from us, far from us. He removes it out to this desert place. He's a constant stream of forgiveness, washing us, making us clean and carrying away the filth of sin far from us. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore 
He carried away our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Deuteronomy 23, the end, uh, verse 23, at the end of this chapter. Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. This is the verse that Paul picks up. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here before the nation of Israel is a nation. Here are all the signs pointing to Jesus and the gospel. Because guess what? Jesus and the gospel have always been God's plan. Always been God's plan for healing the brokenness of sin. And then look, and we're almost done. Right between these Jesus bookends, what do we have? We have buried in the middle the new identity of the captive woman. Look what the Lord did. What the gospel does. The Lord gave her dignity. The Lord allowed this woman to be captured by people who could tell her the good news of the great and glorious and gracious and good God. Then this woman has a new identity. Shave her head, cut her nails, remove her clothes. This woman is going to be made new. She's going to be made new and have a a new identity in this community of faith. The old is gone. The new has come. Our identity, our new identity, It's in Christ and how we love 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Hallelujah. I added that. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In Galatians 3.26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. New clothes for new people. Isn't that good news? For those of us who know we are broken people. We don't have to keep living in the brokenness. And we don't have to be identified by our brokenness. No, we take our identity as those who are made new in Christ. And there we find hope and healing for that brokenness. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Can you imagine? Amazing hope for the broken. Perfection is for heaven. Gospel power, that's for now among people who are not perfect. So let's embrace that hope here first. And let's extend that hope from this place out into the city of Charleston and around the world and let them rejoice in the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your character that's revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Lord, you're a God who loves us, who cares for us, who takes responsibility for us, your children. 
You give us dignity and value, Lord, because we are created in your image. And because of that, you give us Jesus so that we can find healing from brokenness. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of justice. You do what is right. Lord, if you didn't do what's right, there'd be no hope for us. But you are a just God. And you require payment for sin for anyone who would come into your presence, either now or for all eternity. And so, because you're a just God, you yourself paid the price of sin to open heaven to us because of your justice. You required your death on the cross on our behalf. Thank you that you're a just God. Father, we thank you too that you're a God of reality. You know what it's like to be human. Lord, you lived among us. You suffered as we suffer. You experienced life as we experience it. So you know there's brokenness here in this room right now. And you're not shocked by it. You're not put off by it. No, instead, Lord, you provide a way to heal that brokenness. So, Lord, I pray that we'd be people that would seek healing in the gospel. So many thoughts come to our minds from these verses this morning. Lord, a lot of thoughts as we review in our minds how we treat other people. We don't create a good community for them, a safe community, a welcoming community. We say words that are harmful. We do things that are harmful. And, Lord, we're convicted of that. Because, Lord, when those people end up experiencing brokenness, we we have a part to play in that. And, Lord, always in the culture in which we live today, there's the struggle with just the profanity of our culture. Lord, so many believers fall prey to that. And so, Lord, I pray that even in this moment, you would convict hearts of that, that you would encourage hearts, that you would open eyes to see the value you place on us and other human beings. Lord, that we wouldn't give up in hopelessness, that there's nothing we can do about it. We can find hope, we can find healing, we can find victory, Lord, in the gospel. Help us come to you, seek forgiveness, and be determined, Lord, by your strength and through your grace and spirit to be different people. Lord, I pray that you'll help us be just people as well. Lord, give us the courage to live life as you tell us to. We think it won't end well if we do, but that's a lie. It won't end well if we don't. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability, the determination to to die to sin and live to righteousness and justice in our lives. So we submit ourselves to you in great hope because you are, Jesus, the Messiah, the hope, the help for sinners. And so it's to you that we submit ourselves. Amen.